You're listening to the Lockin Podcast with Mike and Baz. Grab a pint and join us in our virtual pub where we chat to ordinary people with extraordinary stories to tell. Coming up on this week's show. If you have a limb and it's cut off and it's a nice clean cut, there's, a, there's a, um, more of a chance you can reattach it. But mine was stretched beyond elasticity until it just gave. So just imagine if they had sewn it back on, I might have been like Stretch Armstrong, do you remember him? I might have a six foot arm. Like Mr. Tickle. Imagine a normal arm this side, a six foot arm that side. And I looked to see my arm was missing and I thought, oh yeah, I I can't see it. I couldn't move very well, to be honest with you. I couldn't move my neck, couldn't move my head. But when I tried to look down on my right hand side, I thought, oh, I don't think it is there. I think they might be telling me the truth. But I thought, well, never mind. Because my act moved on and that's all I could think about. Steve, if you're going to tell me that about six months before you you wished, you, you once said, I'd give me right arm not to have acne anymore. This is an amazing story if that's what you did. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Lock-In Podcast. This week, we have a very special edition for you. If you've been watching Richard Hammond's Crazy Contraptions, the show that me, Baz, and Joshua featured on a couple of weeks ago, last week, you will have seen a team called the Aviators. They're a group of pilots uh, with disabilities, and one in particular you will recognize in the rest of this podcast, because we've had him on the podcast before. Back in January this year, we had Steve Robinson from the Aviators off Richard Hammond's Crazy Contraptions on our podcast and me and Baz interviewed him about his life, about losing a limb when he was 18 years old and how he's had to overcome so many challenges since then. It's an incredible story. It's an uplifting, it's funny, it's heartwarming, it's incredible. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to me back in January. Welcome to the Locket Podcast for another episode. If you've not seen us and you've not, uh, if you've not heard us or listened to us before, um, the idea of this is that me and Baz are sat in our virtual pub, the Brace of Reedlings, and we've just got someone along to our table while we have a drink to have a chat with us. Um, we tend to get people in who are ordinary people with extraordinary stories to tell, and we have definitely got one of them today. 100%, yeah. So um, our guest today is called Steve. Now, 39 years ago, Stephen's life changed beyond recognition. An accident caused him to lose his right arm, setting him on a path of ingenuity, courage, and determination. Now a motivational speaker, Stephen looks back over his life at the challenges he's overcome and the amazing moments that have shaped his future. Not my words, the words of Steve himself. (laughs) I've just read the back of his autobiography. Let's get it straight out there. It's called No Arm in Trying. See, we've all got one. There you go. We've all got a copy of this. It's signed to me as well. When you read that, I thought that sounds really familiar. That I've read that somewhere before. <laughs> it sounds, that sounds quite interesting, that, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I thought you'd, you'd actually written that. I didn't realise you were reading off the back of the book. Yeah, I, thought, I thought, wow, that is very... I thought you've, you've been reading the book. Like, did you, did you think... Of, uh, Baz, did you think I'd done some preparation for this and done uh, all that and written an introduction? Well, you, you left me a bit flummoxed then for a minute because like, we don't do any preparation. <laughs> so our guest today is um, is Steve Robinson, um, a guy that we met um, a couple of Baz and I met a couple of weeks ago, and um, as soon as uh, we heard just a little bit about his uh, his life, we definitely knew straight away we wanted him on the podcast. hundred yeah. percent, and here he is. So um, as we say, um, I'm. Um, I am reading um, Steve. So Steve is a um, a one armed pilot, uh, an aerobatics pilot. Um, 
and which is yeah if that's not reason enough to get him on the podcast what is do you know what i mean yeah um so yeah uh, i've been reading his autobiography and um i'm about two-thirds of the way through it and he's not on a flying lesson yet so we've got plenty to talk to <laughs> plenty to plenty to talk about can i just say one thing as well what's really good about your book steve is that you've got these lovely blocks of your photograph sections Oh, do you like them? Oh, yeah, they're really good. And what's, what I do like about it is the fact that you can go through those and you can pick up, they tell your story without having to read the whole book as well, which is, you know, but it's nice that they go along with the text as well because it gives you a nice visual to go with it. What, what he's trying to tell you, Steve, is he's not read your book. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> what, what he likes to look at pictures, but I'm one of those people as well. I like reading books by looking at pictures. Yeah, it, I, it, he's, basically what he's saying is he couldn't be asked to read your book before you got you on the podcast. At least I've done two-thirds of it. I didn't even read the back, so I didn't even know what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is the most reading I've done in years. I've only read it a, a dozen times, but it sounds. It, I thought when you read that, I thought that sounds really nice. That's a real good intro. Is that Mike? What, what, what nice intro he's written for me there. I thought you'd done some real research. You've been on the website. You must have been. You must have been sort of like stalking me and all that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, I've read two thirds of your autobiography. That's a pretty good amount of research. It's more than I've done for any other podcast. <laughs> That's pretty good going. It is. It is. So I'm going to take you straight back. Like, um, for a, a spoiler alert, um, I said that um, Steve is a one-armed pilot, um, and the, the book starts with how he lost his arm. And I know um, we've um, we know Steve well enough to know that um, he's comfortable to talk about that. I mean, he wrote it in a book for a start. <laughs> yes, but um, but yeah, Steve, do you want to take a, take us back to um, to how it happened? Wow. Yeah. So I mean, it's a long time ago. Like you say, it's 39 years ago. In actual fact, it's coming up to 40 years on this April the 19th. So next year, a few months in, and it'd be, um, it's one arm day. I celebrate every year, you know, so we must get together for a big celebration. 100%. I'm all over that. We're, we're there for that. On the 19th of April, every year I have a party, and it's called one arm day. And um, But I'll tell you how it happened. I was, I was never any good at school, and I left school in Easter as quick as I could to get away. But I always liked tinkering with motorbikes because they had a motorbike at the age of 13 and that was my escapism from bullies at school. And so I rode my motorbike constantly for five years until I went, well, I went to college and I studied to be a motor mechanic and I was in my first day back of the final term. And it was a half day because they always made first days back half days so you can just gently get yourself back into it. So I've been there till lunchtime, went home, went out on my motorbike and lost my right arm on that motorbike. And I was I was trials riding and, and scrambling or motocrossing on my local field. And there was another couple of guys there that I didn't know were there. And one of them must have seen me and, and, and headed away from me. And the other guy thought he could do a daredevil type stunt and jump off of a blind hill and over the top of me and my motorbike and, and, and impress everybody. But he, he couldn't do what he thought he could do. And instead of jumping over me, he landed on top of me and his foot peg ripped my arm off there and then and it landed 100 metres away from me at the feet of a young kid that, that I still see from time to time. His name was Brownie. But I think about that kid a lot because he tells me this story that his arm landed at his feet and the fingers were wriggling. You know, like the, do you remember the horror movie? Was it yeah. called The Hand yeah. or The Arm? Yeah. And yeah. his hand crawling along the, the ground trying to kill you. And I'm thinking, I wonder whether he has nightmares over that. I feel, I feel, I feel for that kid a lot, to be honest with you. How old was he? How old was he, Steve? So it was. So I was about that time. I would have been, I would have been eighteen when I lost my right arm, and he was probably fourteen or fifteen. Oh, he was yeah. only a young kid, so that must have 
I mean, it, it, yeah, it must have played a bit of trauma on on his mind. I would imagine. I was okay. You know what happens when you when you're the recipient of real trauma? Your brain cuts everything out, and you don't remember everything. You don't remember anything. So I don't really remember anything apart from what people tell me, and even what they tell me, I don't remember. So I'm not sure whether now I'm remembering real memories or remembering what people have told me. And it seems like a bit of a, a dream, really. But it's not a bad dream. It's not It's not a nightmare. It's just an interesting dream. It's, uh, I think it says quite a lot about you as a person that the first thing you said then was that you, were, that you had someone else's feelings that actually was affected by what happened to you ahead of your own feelings. Well, I was okay, you see, because I, I was... I was just the recipient of it. It was everybody else that was around me that were actually experiencing it. They were experiencing the the hurt and the um, and and the trauma more than I was because I I was a person that really experienced the trauma, but I was out of it. I was drugged up in hospital, didn't know anything about it. So it was everybody else around me that were feeling it. You know, they had two three weeks of of despair and and worry where I was just totally out of it on uh, you know in intensive care on drugs and not knowing anything. So I was. Um, I was saved all that trauma to a certain extent. The psychological trauma, I wasn't saved the physical trauma. Obviously, that had to be overcome. And the thing is, you, you just have to overcome it. There, there is no option, is there? You can't sit down and wait for your, your, your missing arm to grow back. It's not like breaking an arm or a leg, where if you sit down for a while, take it easy, eight weeks later, it'll be fixed and you'll be all right again. It, it was never that case. Oh, I'm being handed a cup of tea. <laughs> oh, look at <laughs> There we go. Look, a cup of tea to join you guys. Tremendous. I'd rather have the rum and coke, but there's no, there's no rum on the menu. Well, there's rum on the menu, but there's no coke on the menu. For, for everyone's benefit, just before we came on, I said, look, uh, I said, look, Steve, we're in a pub. You need to get yourself a drink. Um, so he's, uh, he's had his mum make him a cup of tea. Can I ask Absolutely. you a question, Steve? So, obviously, we hear about, like, trauma, you know, and, and limbs being removed in certain accidents. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's obviously quite a few cases where people have had those reattached. I take it that just wasn't an option in your case. Well, in actual fact, they, they tell me, and my mum tells me, and my sister specifically, that they tried to sew my right arm back on and for nine hours. And they came out, they kept coming out of the operating theatre and saying to my mum and my sister, uh, we've lost him uh, three times and we but we've managed to sort of like recover him get him back bring him back to life and we're trying to sew his arm back on and but it's so badly damaged because it was pulled and not cut so if you've got a, if you have a limb and it's cut off and it's a nice clean cut there's a, there's a um, more of a chance you can reattach it but mine was stretched beyond elasticity until it just gave so just imagine if they had sewn it back on, I might have been like Stretch Armstrong. Do you remember him? I might have had a, a six-foot arm. <laughs> like, like Mr. Tickle. Yeah. Imagine a normal arm this side, a six-foot arm that side. Hey, and dog, imagine how much money you'd have made. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you, you could have taken a mean selfie today. <laughs> yeah, from a distance. <laughs> yeah, from a distance, a real distance shot. So I often think about that. And, you know, so, yeah, they tried to sew it back on. They, they couldn't do it. They said it was too badly damaged. All the tendons were, were, were damaged beyond repair. And they'd lost me three times. So then they had to just concentrate on saving my life. And then they'd come out and they'd say to my mum and my sister, it, it'd be okay as long as it's not his liver that's damaged. And then they come out an hour later and say, it's his liver that's damaged. Oh, well. And then they come out and say, we've managed to save a quarter of his liver. 
So I lost three quarters of my liver as well, which of course, early days when I was recovering, that meant I couldn't drink alcohol. But I, I was never a drinker of alcohol before anyway. But surprisingly, your liver is one of the only organs that grows back. Oh, really? And I, I didn't know that. But it, yeah, it me either. Back. So although I had a quarter of a liver, I've now got three. I've now got um, the other three quarters back, and I've got a full liver again, and I can do a little bit of drinking. Although I don't drink to excess. <laughs> well, no, because you've come into our pub and you've ordered a cup of tea. <laughs> well, you know what else on the menu is it? What am I? Just remembered to buy the coke. I've had a rum and coke, and I'm, I'm parched for one. I really fancy one now. Seeing Baz drinking his. <laughs> and do you, do you know what? It's like we're very quickly. Um, people who are listening, people who are watching, are very quickly picking up on the type of person you are. Like Baz said. Um, when you're talking about when you, you know, a, quite a traumatic thing and uh, obviously a life-changing um, event um, for you, um, you're thinking about other people. So people are very quickly getting, um, un understanding what we understand about you in that you're you're very selfless, you think about other people, you're very inspirational, but you're also, it's kind of, um, the, the reason we, we thought we need to get him on is because like, like it, it, you've got such a refreshing attitude about stuff and also it's, there's no doom and gloom. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it, it, if, if you'd have come on here and it was all like, we would were sat with sad faces. It, to be, you know, it, let's be blunt about it. It wouldn't have made a good, people wouldn't have wanted to listen to it. So it's it, the, the fact that we could be late, be lighthearted about it. And um, that you have such a refreshing attitude to it. Um, it's something that I've definitely picked up um, from meeting you and, uh, and from reading your, uh, reading your book. Cause, cause what you've been through, and the way you've coped with it, because quite often, I, like, like through the book, you talk about like you, you, you were never, you know, you you never went through a, you know, depression or a grieving process for the limb never. and things like that. And you, you were just really matter of fact about, well, that's not going to get me anywhere, is it? So just get on with it. Well, I, I, I never was really. And, you know, when I came out of hospital or when I was in hospital, the nurses would keep coming past and saying to me, you know, you've lost your arm, don't you, Steve? But... I, I sort of knew, but I could feel it, so I wasn't really certain whether I had or I hadn't. And I was too weak to even reply, but they kept saying to me, you've lost your arm, you've lost your arm, you've lost your arm. And it wasn't until one day they asked the nurse to take me to a proper toilet because all the, the patients used commodes, and, and we didn't have proper toilets. And she took me to the, to the staff toilets, and unknown to her, or she'd forgotten, there was a mirror in the bathroom. And when I looked in the mirror for the first time, I realised that all my acne had gone and I really did suffer at the hands of the bullies because I was really spotty, I had really bad acne. And I looked in the mirror and I was absolutely overjoyed. I thought, wow, my acne's gone. And I was so happy that my acne had gone that it sort of like consumed me full of of of, of hope and, and 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 joyfulness. And I was just I was I was just overjoyed. Then I looked in again and I looked to see my arm was missing. And I thought, oh yeah, it, I, I can't see it. I couldn't move very well, to be honest with you. I couldn't move my neck, couldn't move my head. But when I tried to look down on my right hand side, I thought, oh I don't think it is there. I think they might be telling me the truth. But I thought, well, never mind. Because my acne had gone and I, that's all I could think about. Steve, if you're going to tell me that about six months before you you wished you, you once said I'd give me right arm not to have acne anymore, this is an amazing story. If that's what you did, I, you know, I might have said something like that in the past. I can't remember exactly, but a lot of people do say that, don't they? Yeah, I yeah. My right arm for that. Actually, I would never say that. Although, to be honest with you, I could say it now because I can have it because I don't know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> Give me right arm for anything because it's probably not in a good neck at the minute now. Imagine the scabby right arm I might get now if I said I'd give my right arm for that. I'd give my right, I'd give my right arm to be a celebrity. Well, okay, there's your celebrity. Where's your right arm? Well, 
it's down at least general infirmary somewhere, I think. <laughs> if, they've still, if they've still got it. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty it. sure they don't. It's not in a cupboard somewhere, Steve. <laughs> do, do, you know, do you know one thing that really shocked me about this, and I think this is quite shocking, really? They never, at any point at the hospital, offered me my arm back. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. Would you have wanted it? I don't know, but you know, if it were my arm, yes. why did you say to me, do you want this arm, Steve? Do you want to stuff it and put it over your mantelpiece? Or, <laughs> or do you want to just, like, get it pickled? Or... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I've, I've got an amazing image of people walking into your front room and your right arm's there with the middle finger up, stuffed <laughs> on, the, on the mantelpiece. I like that one. But, you know, it just seems a bit weird that they never said to me at any point, uh, there's your arm. Do you want to go and have a, a sort of, like, a burial or a cremation for your arm? Or, or do you want it back? Or, and I thought... That's a bit weird. It wasn't until many, many years later I thought, well, where has my arm gone? Yeah, yeah. And then somebody, a friend of mine who was a doctor, said, well, just goes into clinical waste, so just throw it away. He said, oh, he said, they might use it for research. Oh, oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be stitched to somebody else at the moment. I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> so, did you see, basically, you, you're up in the Yorkshire area looking for some of the big six-foot arm on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've not met them yet. In actual fact, somebody said to me a while ago, you know, if, if they could offer your own arm transplant, would you have one? And I thought, well, oh, I don't really know. So then you start, got to start thinking, okay, but we've only got a right arm from this um, young girl. She was 15. So we take a 15-year-old girl's arm. I'm thinking, well, then I think, well, yeah, why not? But oh, I'm not sure. It's really weird, isn't it? Because you never have to think like that. Yeah, yeah. You think if somebody put you on the spot straight away, take this arm, or if I've got an Arnold Schwarzenegger, great big right arm. <laughs> but, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to look a bit weird here. Huh? <laughs> you can always grow the other one to make it the same size, though. I could, I, I could try. I could try. <laughs> and then, you know, they were doing um, they were doing arm transplants down in Leeds not so long since it happened, and I think they're still doing them, or hand transplants. But then a friend said, you know, it won't be long before they'll just give you a drug and you'll grow your arm back. Yeah. I said, yeah, well, I've been waiting 39 years and it's not, uh, not here yet. But then, would I take the tablet if it meant growing the right arm back? That's a difficult question because I've only I've known almost forty years with one arm and only eighteen years with two arms. So I guess I'm more used to having one arm than I am two. So would I go back and get if it would have taken the tablet? I don't know because now I'd have to retrain as a two arm guy, which is a whole new retraining altogether again. I guess. Mm. Um. Just, just talk us through then immediately after when you've left hospital now that you're now having to sort of adapt to life with only having your left arm. Well, I left, I left hospital way too early, really. But then the occupational therapist had come onto the ward one day and I wanted to just get home. I wasn't happy. I wanted to be at home because I, I had my dog was at home. I wanted to be with a dog and I wanted to be um, with my mum and my sister. And even though it was poorly, I wasn't eating any of the hospital food. It was rubbish, but I wasn't eating anything, really. I'd gone from 10 and a half stone as an 18-year-old to six and a half stone. But um, How much of that was your arm? I often ask myself that. I think, I think, it'd be interesting if somebody knows, but I think that an arm must weigh at least a stone. But it might not. Somebody said maybe a bit less. A leg might weigh a stone. So yeah. when people say to me now, what do you weigh? And they say, well, I weigh nine stone three. They say, oh, you're underweight. I say, no, I'm missing an arm. So you can say, 10 stone three. And say, oh, okay, I'm still a bit underweight, but whatever. But um, so the occupational therapist said, no, you can't go home, Steve, until you can walk the length, length of the ward, there and back. And with those old Victorian wards with like 20 beds and about 20 either side or whatever, so 40 beds in total. 
And she said, and you can't go home until you can get dressed and you can prove to me you can do all these things. And as soon as she said that, I started practising. She'd only been out of the ward one minute and I was trying to get my socks on, get myself dressed. I was trying to walk up and down the ward, which I couldn't walk really because I had a fractured pelvis and, and uh, a broken leg, but I was hobbling in, in pain up and down. And uh, and she came back a week later and she said to me, how are you doing, Steve? I said, I can walk the length of the ward and I can dress myself. She said, can you show me? So I said, yeah, it took me about half an hour to walk the length of this little ward. It took me forever. And then I was exhausted afterwards and then I dressed myself and she said, she said, you're really not ready to go home, Steve. She said, you really should be here like 12 months at least. You, you've got this look, you, you're in a bad way. I said, I know. I said, but you promised me that as soon as I could walk the length of the ward and I could get dressed and put my clothes on, that I could go home. And she said, I did make you that promise, she said. I don't think it's wise, she says. But she said, I did make you that promise. And if you really want to go home, you can. So I said, yeah, I want to go home. So I was I was out of hospital way too early. I'd been in intensive care, I think, two weeks, maybe two weeks, maybe maybe three weeks. I don't really remember. And I was in general in general ward for about a week. Uh, so I might have been there in total three, four weeks, and I should have been there twelve months. And I was back home, and and it was great to be back home. And I remember one day I walked from my mum's house to my grandma's house, which was only not well within a mile, maybe well within half a mile, not far at all. It's normally a five-minute walk from where I live. And I walked to my grandma's house to see my grandma and my granddad. And by the time I got there, I was so exhausted, I needed to go to bed. So I went to bed and I slept for six hours. And then my mum come and got me. And I walked down home again, again, a five-minute, ten-minute walk maximum. And I had to go to bed again for another six hours. It was that It took that much out of me that I was so exhausted. But that was part of rehabilitation. And I have, you know, strange as it sounds, I have fond memories of it. <laughs> it was just an interesting time in my life. Again, Steve, we're just we're just having a conversation here about stuff that you, um, and this is like again, this is, this is something I find really refreshing about you. And, uh, like, you know, in, I don't throw the word inspirational about very easily because um, I think it's overused. But you are absolutely inspirational because you just you just demonstrated again there that someone set you a challenge and you rose to it. Um, and, 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 you know, there was no, there's no sitting about thinking like, oh, what about, I mean, even three weeks, um, three weeks after the event, you weren't sitting about going, feeling sorry for yourself and thinking, oh, what if this, I wish this hadn't happened or anything like that. You were just like, right, well, this is the situation I'm in. How am I going to deal with it? And how am I going to get the best out of it? And how am I going to, am I going to get what I want, which is to get home? And that's all I wanted, really. And, and surprisingly, I don't, I don't feel inspiration. I just feel like I, I don't want to hang around and, and do nothing. I'd rather just get stuck in and, and get cracking. And, and that's how I've been all my life. And I guess things won't change. I'll be like that forever. But um, I was quite a religious guy prior to my accident. I'd be, and I'd not been brought up in a religious household, but I, I couldn't go to bed without saying my prayers. I had to say my prayers every night. And that wasn't anything I'd been taught. It wasn't that my family did it or my siblings, anything. It was just something I felt I had to do. And and it's quite strange because somebody said to me after the accident, they said, how can you believe in God when he's taking your right arm? And I said, well, no, he hadn't taken my right arm. I said, he hadn't taken my right arm. That was just a, a, a fluke accident. I said, he saved my life. I'm still here. Yeah. So, so I saw the positive in it. And then, but surprisingly, I don't pray anymore. And that, and that is because I have a different sort of understanding. And instead of, I mean, I do from time to time, but I have a different type of understanding. I have more of a, a spiritual understanding and 
I think to myself, is that because maybe I've been somewhere and I've come back and I know what it was like and I know maybe I don't have to pray because they're all there for you when you get there anyway. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, a deeper meaning that I don't really know, but I became a spiritualist and uh, attended a lot of spiritualist churches and I quite I quite like that and I took a lot of comfort from that. I just want to say that on a point that Mike made about the you know the, the, the word inspirational. Quite often, when you see someone who's who's listed as being an inspirational person, it's generally because they're that's their business now and they're they're openly trying to inspire people. Whereas the difference with you is that you're inspiring people without trying to inspire people. So I think just generally by your actions and the fact that you you got this attitude, which is like. Do you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to get on with what, what I need to do because that's all that's in front of me. You, you know, you're not looking behind you about what you've done and what's happened to you. You're just looking forward about. And like Mike said, it's, I think with you, it just it comes across that you see things as a challenge and you're not going to be and you're not going to sort of bow down to that. I think that's what it is. I do see, but I see everything every day, objects and little, yeah, little things are all challenges. And that's why after a while, even a small challenge looks the same as a big challenge you know that they're all just the same and when people say stuff to you like you can't do that i think well you know people should never say to somebody else you can't do that because to say it with such confidence that they maybe might instill that belief in others that they can't do it and as soon as you believe that you can't do it then you, you, you've had it yeah because it's um because you've, you've you've let self-doubt creep in and uh, there's no such thing as you can't do something if anybody else can do it or if it can be made by other people or companies, then then you can do it and you make you can make it. It's that that's for certain, one hundred percent certain. If somebody says to me, "I can't make an aeroplane," yeah, I can't. I know I can make an aeroplane. I mean, it might take me it might take me a while. It's a steep learning curve, but I know I can make an aeroplane. It's just it's just a all everything everything is just a case of how much time you've got to spend on something and how much money you can afford to throw at things. And if you if you if you rule out the time element, and you rule out the money element, then there's nothing else stopping you, is there? <laughs> this goes back to what I was just saying about a minute ago. You don't see that as being anything inspirational. That's just you. But actually, those are such words of wisdom that like people don't understand that they'd listen to you so not, and actually take that on board. And that's changing people's perspective on stuff just by by saying the things that you actually just believe in. And, and it's strange because I never had to teach myself these things. It, they're just they're just beliefs. Yeah, you know, and and. But the beliefs that I've proved time and time again, and I'm not not that I'm proving them to others, and I'm not trying to say, look, I promise you this is true and I'm going to show you, because it's not always that. It's sometimes if I have any self-doubt at all, and I think, can I do that? And then I think to myself, well, of course I can do it. And then now I'm proving to myself that I knew that I could do it and I can do it. So I, I always found that when I used to compete with others, that – it was difficult to, to, to lose if you're competing with others. But as soon as I competed with myself, and I, I, I didn't lose anymore. It's even though you might not come first, and you don't always have to come first, because so long as you compete what you did the last time round or the first time round, the second time round, you can do better and better. How have you lost? Because you've just improved what you, you did before. And I, I honestly believe that there is no such thing as failure. I honestly believe that. There's only different degrees of success. Some people are more successful than others. Does that mean the person that wasn't as successful failed? No, it just means they weren't as successful, but they were still successful. If I am high, and I, I'll still get high, so admit my goal is super high, but I don't actually get that. I only get there. It's still a high level, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's what you might as well do. You might as well aim as high as you possibly can. And then when you get as high as you think you can, aim higher than that.
<laughs> Lovely. I, I love these pearls of wisdom in a broad Yorkshire accent. It's just oh. brilliant. Everything should be, you know, every, every, you know, all of these ones where you hear like these inspirational quotes, like, you know, in, in, like, kind of in a soft voice over music and you listen to it and subliminally you get us like, love it in a Yorkshire. It'd be there. <laughs> It'd be amazing. And I didn't think I had a really strong Yorkshire accent, but I, I think I might have. A, a few of my friends, fellow speakers, that um, work as motivational speakers try and lose their accents. And I always said, no, I'm never going to try to lose my accent. I am who I am. And I never want to be anything else than I am. I'm a Yorkshire man and, and I'm born and bred in Yorkshire and I've got one arm and I am what I am and, and I'll always be that. Amazing. And uh, uh, we, we, we said before, we were talking before about, um, you know, how nothing, you know, you don't let anything stop you and you've achieved massive things and you've just kind of, you know, you've 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 taken the loss of a limb and just got on with it and achieved amazing things that some people couldn't have achieved. You know, as able-bodied people couldn't have achieved, um, which kind of takes me on to one of the obviously one of the most notable things you've been able to achieve is to become a pilot. I haven't got to that bit of your book yet because I'm like I say, I mean, mate, mate, mate. To be fair. The front page of this book has got you with one arm in a pilot's uniform. You did the one arm thing on page one. I'm two thirds of the way through. You haven't even had a flying lesson yet. It's fancy dress, fancy dress. <laughs> so yeah, what, what, at what age did you just decide? Do you know what? I don't care if I've only got one arm. I want to be a pilot. It was never on my radar ever, ever. In actual fact, nice pun. I was afraid of flying, <laughs> and, I, and I needed three weeks hypnotherapy to fly to Spain with friends, and I was I was petrified of it. But saying that, I used to dream a lot of flying. But I used to I used to dream by fla I used to be flying my dreams by flapping my arms. But I always had two arms. In actual fact, this is interesting. I've never had a single dream with one arm ever. I always had two arms in my dreams. And um, so it's, it's quite interesting. I've got to tell you something else as well, and I really like this. And because I, I also have these phantom limb stuff. I know I'm digressing, but I've got to tell you this because I love it. Absolutely. And I, I, I get phantom limb, which is I don't get pains, but it itches sometimes. And, and, and I'm rubbing around here to try and find where the itch is. And a friend of mine said to me one day, he said, um, you know what that is, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, it's called phantom limb syndrome. And I said, it's because, I said, it's because my nerve endings, as I still think my arm's there and my brain still thinks my, my arm's there and it's trying to transmit signals through. He said, no, it's not that. I said, oh. I said, what is it? And Because I thought he might be more uh, so like educated than I was. Maybe he was a medical man. And he said to me, it's because your soul's still intact. I loved it. <laughs> Wow. That's really good. I really loved it. I had to share that with you because it just—I just loved it. Anyway, that was just. A, but it made me when he said that to me. I thought, wow, that's a nice thing. I really like that. What a positive to come out. I thought, I, I love that because I was just looking at the science behind it, and it, it just came out of that naturally. And I thought, you're right, my soul is still intact. I thought I loved it. That thing that you just said um, is something that I picked out of the book, and I was just like, I need to write that down because. Um, that is a fascinating thing for me. It was like, um, I mean, you said, well, you always refer to hands, not hand. Yeah. And, um, and like, like you said, I mean, just that you've, you know, you've been, um, you've been without your right arm for 39 years and you've never once had a dream where you've got one arm. I, I think that's, that's a that's fascinating thing. And I don't know if that's a way of your brain kind of coping with it or, or, or what it is, but I just find that fascinating. I've not a clue what it is, but never 
I've never had a, had a dream with with one arm. It's strange, isn't it? It is a bit. And even if I dream of flying now, and I, I don't fly in an aircraft, I fly by flapping my arms. And it's but, but back to the question. I never, I never wanted to be a pilot. It was never on my radar of anything to do. I, I it, it just wasn't there. And I was afraid of flying. And and I've been through litigation. I'd invented a digital jukebox that had earned me a lot of money, and a company stole it. And ended up in six years litigation, and I'd been in a disastrous relationship, and it, and it, it was dreadful, and, and it all the, the court hearing and the relationship came to an end all at the same time, and I was, I was desperately sad, and and I was looking for a way to end my life really, and because I was just I was just I'd had enough, I'd, you know when you lose the fight. Now I'm all about fighting and battling on and do it, you can do it, and 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 keep going and and heading for your dreams and your goals, and. It just felt at that moment in my life that all my dreams, all my goals had all gone. And when I looked for a dream, I thought, I have no goal, I have no dream, I have no I have nothing that I want. And as soon as I was in that position, I thought, What's the point of life if there's nothing there that I want to achieve? And then I thought to myself, I have to find a new desire and a new goal and a new dream. And I saw this article on the internet and it said, Flying scholarship for disabled people. And I thought to myself, I hate flying. And I thought, I really don't like flying. But I thought, that could be just a dream and the new goal that I want. And I thought, and not only that, if it if it all goes wrong and tits up and it ends up killing me, I thought, well, I'm all right with that as well. So I was at that period in my life where I thought, what have you got to lose? Go for it. I, I, I'll give it a go. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd lost I, I, in the court case. Now, I'll tell you, just to put into perspective why I was desperately down and despair and suicidal because we calculated that i'd lost 6.2 million pounds in wow. in, uh, in fraudulent jukebox sales so it was i mean i'd, I'd earned over a million pounds on on my jukebox sales that, uh, that i'd done independently but the company that ripped me off i'd sold 6.2 million pounds worth of my of my invention so I, i'd lost all that money and i thought how often is it that you come up with a multi-million pound product and and Maybe you can do a few times in your life, I don't know, but I just felt that time, maybe this is it, and maybe there's no, no other products in me. And there are as it happens, but you don't know at that point. And that's why I was so desperately sad. And um, But then I thought, I'll apply for this flying scholarship because I just need a new dream, a new goal. And, and I was fed up. I didn't, I didn't have any faith left in people because they'd stolen all this copyright. And to my surprise, I was awarded it. And I was petrified of flying. I didn't like it. And every day I did flight training, I was hoping that it was bad weather so I didn't have to go up. But uh, but it took 12 months for the NHS to make me an arm so I could fly this aircraft. But the arm wouldn't work and it fell off at 3,500 feet when we were doing manoeuvres. And we ended up doing a spiral dive and dropping through a cloud. So it was quite scary, especially when you're afraid of flying. But I thought I was determined. And I kept saying to people, how long will it be before I'm not uh, afraid of flying? Uh, or, or I'm not anxious anymore. And this was this was a standard the standard answer, and the answer was hopefully you'll never lose your your anxiousness or your your slight fear of flying, because as soon as you lose it, you become complacent, and when you become complacent flying an aircraft, they said that's when it'll bite you. So even though I go flying now, I'm still I'm not scared, but I'm always aware of the things that can go wrong. So I'm, I'm a bit nervous thinking about we're taking off and you're looking around thinking anybody else around me, and. Um, yeah, it's, I love it, but I never thought I would get that far because the arm straight away wouldn't work. 
the NHS made a second arm that took another 12 months and that didn't work. And I was so fed up by this point that I decided I'd make my own prosthetic arm. So I bought a milling machine and a lathe and a lump of aluminium and I started manufacturing this prosthetic arm that was a bit like a, a bit like a Frankenstein's monster because I didn't really have any idea what it would look like, but I knew what I wanted it to do and I had a general idea of the, the size and dimensions. And I, I just started making it and when it was done, it worked. And I went to my local airfield that wouldn't allow me to go to do a, a solo flight because they wanted me to be able to control the stick and the throttle at the same time. But obviously, having one arm, I couldn't do that. But as soon as I went up and I said, will this do it? Because the CFI, which stands for the Chief Flying Instructor, wouldn't let me do my solo flight until I could demonstrate that I could control all controls, single-handed well, single or with by myself with this prosthetic arm. Because going back to the first question you said, we're not allowed to modify aircraft, but there's nothing in the rules that says you can't modify yourself. So, so I modified myself. I left the I left the aircraft as standard. When I went with the prosthetic arm and modified myself, and I said, "Will this do it?" They said, "Oh well, if you can prove that you can do the throttle and the stick and all these bits and bats at the same time," he said, "Possibly." So we went flying there, and then with the chief flying instructor. And he made me do above and beyond what he'd make an able-bodied person do. Because I had to prove that my arm was up to the task and even better. Anyway, it did. And it proved him wrong. And he said, when we landed, he said, well, Steve, he said, he said, I've got to eat my words. He said, it does work. He said, yeah, you, you can do your solo flight. And two weeks later, I did my solo flight. <laughs> a week after, I did a cross-country qualifying flight. A week later, I did what's called a cross-country qualifying flight, where I had to fly from my local airfield to Durham Tees International Airport, I had to land and get my logbook stamped. And I had to also fly th through a military air a military airfield zone. You have to get special clearance to go through their, their aircraft, their air zone. And then from there, I had to fly all the way down to Humberside International Airport, get my logbook stamped again. And then you have to fly all the way back to your home airfield with the evidence that you'd, you'd landed at these two away airfields. And that's part of your navigation really to make sure to prove you can do it and then a week after that i did my what they call skills test which is like your driving test in the sky and i passed and i became a qualified private pilot in 2015 <laughs> That's bad. with my own metal arm <laughs> i love that sipping his tea like a mic drop anyone <laughs> yeah, became, a, uh, became a pilot in 2015 could, uh, can we have a quick chat about you as an inventor? Because obviously we spoke briefly when we were talking about the whole arm conundrum and flying, and you were saying that obviously with arm failures in, uh, in prosthetic arms that are manufactured, that you can't afford a failure at, at three, you know, what was it, three and a half thousand feet or whatever it was. Yeah. So, yeah. so did you say that you'd invented a, uh, can we talk about this, that you'd invented a system where you can, the arm, you could detach the arm? Yeah, so what, what I did is I realised I did a little bit of motorcycling after I'd lost my right arm, not a lot, because it wasn't as much fun. And I went to the NHS at that point and they made me a prosthetic arm. And I used to enjoy hill climbing. And I'd gone up this hill, no problem. <clears throat> and I was coming coming down the hill and the front wheel slipped on the muddy embankment and the bike just fell onto its side. And I just stepped off of the foot pegs under control, no problem. But then the prosthetic arm wouldn't let go. And my motorbike is dragging me down this hill and I'm banging the arm and it wouldn't let go because it was like, it had what they called a sea hook. So it was like shaped like a sea and it was made of chromium steel and it hooked over the, the rubber handlebars so you could push with it and pull with it. 
Mm. But it wouldn't let go because once steel was against rubber, it just it just wouldn't let go. And I'm banging this arm, it wouldn't come off. And it got to, to a stage where this motorbike was just about to drop over a 10-foot drop. Now, it might not have killed me, but it would have hurt me and it because it would have dragged me along with it. And the foot peg, fortunately, stuck into the ground and it stopped rolling down, the, down this slope. And I managed to disconnect my arm and get off. But at that point, I realised, because I'd had that experience, I realised that if I was going to fly a plane or do anything else or any more dangerous sports, I needed a prosthetic arm that knew how to let go and when to let go. So then what happened is I made this arm and I made a pin here that if I pulled this pin or banged this button, the whole arm would drop into pieces and just drop off me. And I realised that was my quick release mechanism. So if I got into a situation where I had to crash land the aircraft and I had to get out quickly, or I had to detach the arm and bail out with a parachute, even though I ain't got a parachute, I had to just bang this button, the whole arm would drop to pieces, a bit like a Meccano kit, and, and I would be released and I could get out. So that's what I made, I invented an arm that had a, a quick release mechanism. And no, because nobody ever thinks that they want to get out of a prosthetic limb. Once you put the prosthetic limb on, you know, it's on. You don't think you have to get out. But I, I, you know, I, I realised I might have to get out at some point. So, so I, have a, I have a question for you, Steve. So yeah. if, for instance, you'd lost your left arm instead of your right arm, would it have been more difficult to have done what you've done? Because obviously you're, you've made your right arm for a very specific task. If it had been the other way around, would you have been able to overcome those odds like by making a, a, you know, an arm for that as well? Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Baz, it would have been a lot easier if I'd lost my left arm. Okay, right, because yeah, yeah. When, when, you, when you fly... When you fly as pilot one, they call it P1, we fly from the left-hand seat. So my throttle is on my left hand, but there's also a throttle on my right hand. But all the flap controls and trim controls, that's so you can make your aircraft fly straight and level. It's got like a little it's got like a little elevated trim, they call it. It's like a real little thing on the back of the elevator that you just open. It just makes you fly straight and level, so you can let go of the controls. But all those controls for that are down on my right-hand side. So although I'm flying my aircraft, well, so I'm flying like that with a stick, I'm having to lean across myself to get these other controls. Where if I'd lost my left arm, then it would have been right there at my uh, at my right arm. But saying yeah. that, even though it might have been better to lose a left arm, I'm glad I lost my right arm, even though it was my dominant arm, because I'd become left-handed and I had to become left-handed. And I think becoming left-handed has trained the other side of my brain. I've become a little bit ambidextrous, although I can't write with this yeah. right arm, but yeah. I guess I am ambidextrous. And... You know, and I think that you get a lot more creativity because you they say left-handed people are creative. Now, I'm not born left-handed, but I'm trained left-handed, so maybe I'm also trained to be creative. And to be honest with you, I, I, I like dancing. I like a lot of dancing. I had partner dancing. And I'd have lost my right, my, my left arm, and I had my right arm. It's not the real, it's not the proper arm to dance with because we lead with his left arm and your right arm is the arm you put around your partner. Right, yeah, so yeah. So although I can't put my arm around my partner and give a real good cuddle, I can direct her and lead her with my left arm. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased that it worked out that way. I love, I just love how you put a silver lining on absolutely everything you talk about. It's just amazing. Well, everything, has, everything does have a silver lining though, doesn't it? You've just yeah, got to yeah. find it. You've just got yeah, to find yeah. yours. That's all it is, I think, sometimes. Going on from um, you being a pilot, which is a pretty amazing thing to do anyway, how did you go from being a pilot to being an aerobatics pilot? Ah, well, because I was petrified of aerobatics. I mean, I mean, literally petrified. And if you hit an air pocket in an aircraft and drop, you think, oh, what's going on? And you scare yourself to death. And 
it was one day I saw this article again, and it was on it was on a website, and it was a Davina McCall show, and it was called This Time Next Year, and they were looking for contestants, and I thought, well, I'll apply for that. I wonder what I can do. So I applied for it, and they said to me, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I could ride a horse around the field in, in, or do some horse jumping because I was always afraid of horses. I was petrified of horses, so I took horse riding lessons and competed in the dressage national qualifiers, and I came third. <laughs> in those, but I was I was petrified of horses. Now I love them, so I thought I can ride a horse around the field if you like. I said, or oh, I can land my aircraft at like five airports in five hours, or fly from here to somewhere. And stupidly, I said, or oh, I could do aerobatics. <laughs> and I don't know to this day, I don't know why I said that because <laughs> I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of it. But maybe subconsciously, again, I didn't want to be afraid of it, so I didn't mention it, thinking. I hope they don't pick up on that, but it's there. And if they do, we'll deal with it then. But then they rang me up and they said, yeah, we'd like you to do it, Steve. I said, great, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do the um, the, the, the flying to each airport or, or riding a horse? They said, no, we want you to do aerobatics. And I said to, I said to them there and then, I said, no, I said, I don't want to do the aerobatics. I said, they said, uh, and they said to me at that point, aren't you a motivational speaker? And I said, yeah. She said, um, don't you go around the world talking about how anything is possible? And I said, yeah. And she said, don't you also talk about how you can overcome any fear by using a proven psychotherapy methodology known as exposure therapy? And at which point I realised I'd really backed myself into a corner. <laughs> and, and I had to say, yes, OK, I'll do the challenge. But I was petrified, absolutely petrified. So I took on the challenge and... They ring me up on a daily basis and saying, how are you doing? Have you started? We need you to do some video diaries. And I said, I haven't started yet. And I said, well, you've got to get cracking. You've only got a year. And it got to almost six months in. And I'm not done out. And they're ringing me saying, well, why are you doing out? And I thought, well, because I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. So I went to the airfield. I thought, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to get cracking. So I booked my first aerobatics lesson at the airfield. And we got up there. Uh, with my flying instructor and my flying instructor the aerobatics instructor is phenomenal is is he was 75 when he taught me it must be 77 now something like that maybe even older and it's phenomenal and we went up and he said right i said what we're going to do i said let's just do something gentle i don't want to go straight into it he said let's do a loop i said no 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 i said don't want to do a loop said, no not yet not yet he said we'll do some steep turns so we did these steep turns and they are steep. You like it 70 degrees, so you're, you're right over. On, yeah. Let me show you that one. So you like that really banked over. But so your aircraft doesn't slip sidewards, you've got to pull back on the elevator and put more power on. So you go into it's like driving into a corner like a chicane mm. and putting your foot down in the chicane. You get this, you really push into your seat. And, uh, and we pulled like 2G just in a turn. And I thought, oh, I don't like that. And then we did it the other way. And then another 2G, and I said, oh, I don't like that. I said, my head's going funny. He said, oh, you've got to look in the direction. He said, so when you go around the corner, you've got to go like that, look, 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 look. And you've got to follow your head around like you, it's really weird. So I did that and I said, oh, okay, that did take away the, the wooziness in my head. He said, shall, shall we do some more? And I said, uh, no. I said, can we end it? I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. And we turned around and went back to the airfield and we're just coming back to, a, to the approach to land. And I said to him, I said, I've got to do it really, haven't I, Peter? And he said, well, if you want to fulfill this challenge you've made, you do, yeah? And I said, all right, then. He said, take us back. Let's do it. And I, I went on my way back, like I said. So he took us back. 
And he said, right. He said, we'll do a loop. And he said, but before we do a loop, we're going to do some shallow dives. So we're up at like three 3,000 feet. And we do a shallow dive to get his airspeed up. And he said, right, pull up. So he shows you, first of all, and you pull up until you get used to this G-force, then you level out. Then you do it more and more, and you get more aggressive, and, and you keep pulling out. And he said, right, he said, we've experienced a few of those. We've got about, he said, we've got about two and a half G there. I said, what are we going to pull in a loop? He said, three to four G. I said, okay, so like almost double. He said, let me show you what, how we're going to do it. He said, I'll talk you through it, and then we'll do it bit by bit. And he put us into this shallow dive, and we pulled up. And then he pushed full power on. So we're like flying uphill with power on. And as you get over the top, you look backwards and you're looking for the ground and you see the ground. And as soon as you see the ground and you realise you're coming over, you set the power off so you're not going downhill with, with, with power on. And, and you, just, you, you just come to the bottom of this loop. And as you come to the bottom of this loop, you get all this G-force. So the G-force only gets you at the bottom of the loop. You get nothing at the top, nothing up, nothing down, just at the bottom of the loop. That's where you get it. And... Um, and I came out of that loop and I thought, wow. I thought, wow. I thought, that was absolutely amazing. I thought, what have I just done? And although I was scared leading up to it, the actual doing of it, I thought, bloody hell, I've done it. I thought, I would have, that, that, it was incredible. He said, right, let's do it again. I said, yeah, okay. I was all right second time. In fact, I might have said to him, can we do it again? And he said, yeah. And we did it again. And he said, right, he said, we're going to do it again now. He said, but I want you to put it into the dive. He said, and you pull it, you pull the stick back. He said, now I'll operate the power. So it's step by step. So that's what we do. He did the power until we've done a few more loops. And he said, right, this time you put on the power. I'll tell you when, and I'll tell you when to cut it. And inside, I think maybe inside 20 minutes, half an hour, I was doing a loop. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, this is absolutely incredible. There are some really nice aerobatic moves that you think, when you do them, you just think, wow, that's brilliant. It just just feels good. The the loop is the one that you you get most G force from. In, mm. in fact, and any other of the moves really are quite benign in comparison to a to a loop. So that's why they want to start with a loop because that's where you get the most G force. So you're now a qualified aerobatics pilot. Yeah. Correct. So, yeah. um, do you have to get permission to do that, or when you're you know say you're out for a fly and just think I'm just going to fly from Leeds to Humberside, can you just pull a loop if you want to, or have you got to let someone know you're doing it? Or it's a great question, yeah. No, so so yeah, I can just go. I can just go do a loop. So what what I have to do is you put a little code in your in your in your transmitter and you put seven thousand and four and seven thousand and four means you're going to be doing extreme manoeuvres, which makes the um, which allows the air traffic controllers to know you're going to be doing air tra- you're going to be doing aerobatics. And then we can just pull a loop, yeah. I just have the feeling that you've got that squat code on all the time whenever you fly. Really. <laughs> I, do, I, I actually I actually don't do that much aerobatics because the nice thing about flying is I do like doing them. But you tend to go out for an aerobatics sortie as it's as it's sort as you call it. Yeah. So We'd book a day and we'd say, well, this is an aerobatics day. And all you do is aerobatics. But most of the time when we're flying, or when I'm flying, I'm going somewhere. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to go to the coast today. I really fancy flying around Whitby Abbey. And I'm going to look around there. So you fly up, fly around Whitby Abbey and have a good old look around. Then you go somewhere else. You land. You'd have your lunch and a cup of tea and, and have a natter with your friend. If you take your friend, have a, just a general good day out and then fly back and land. So under those uh, circumstances... I wouldn't be doing any aerobatics. And if I'm taking a passenger with me, 
I would never do aerobatics on my passenger without them wanting to do aerobatics. I would never right. do that because it, that is enough to scare somebody from flying for the rest of their lives. So I wouldn't do that. But if they said to me, can we do a loop? I say, oh, yeah, we can do a loop. It's amazing. I've slipped into a conversation again. where, And I, I, I get this when I'm reading your book and I get this every time I speak to you. That I've, We've slipped into a conversation now where I just completely forgot you've only got one arm. I didn't forget, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just became. It just becomes... So inconsequential to everything that you do, because um, because you've uh, you, you've been able to achieve all these things and overcome uh, the disability, it just becomes irrelevant. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean any disrespect by that. I just mean that it's like it, it just doesn't even come into the conversation. You're just like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, fly this, fly that, and I'm just like, this guy's got one arm. It is irrelevant, really. You know, I've got to tell you, it, it, it's a minor inconvenience. It's uh, a minor inconvenience that. You know, I possibly could have done without, but would I do it all again? I'd go, I'd, I'd do it all again. I'd go through it all again because because my life with one arm has been so much more interesting and exciting than it had been with two arms. But then saying that, I was only an 18 year old, so life hadn't even begun really. Yeah, yeah. But um, who knows what life would have had in store for me with two arms? I, I, I'm not a clue. But the life I've had with um, with one arm has been exciting, interesting, and and led me to meet some incredible people and do some incredible stuff. I just want to say thank you, Steve, because, um, like I said, like I said before, that uh, you don't think you know you're an inspirational man, but um, but I made a lot of notes here where it's like you realised you hated flying, so you <laughs> yeah. became a pilot. You hated yeah. horses, so you became a dressage competitor. Yeah, yeah. You hated aerobatics, and eventually um, you got round to doing aerobatics, and I just think that's. If nothing else, I mean, there's so much about you that's inspirational, but if nothing else, just, you know, getting on with shit you don't want to do, even in, you know, in daily life and things like that, it's, it's such an important message for people. And I just think, um, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm blessed to uh, blessed to have met you. Thanks again. Thanks so much for being on. Um, it, it's been a pleasure to chat to you. Um, pleasure to meet you. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Lot In Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to all our social media platforms. Head over to thelockin.co.uk for all the links.